Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational Shiki live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, August 16th, 2021, and this is episode 30A. As it is an A episode, we're going to start things off this week as usual with the new comic book day poll list. Things that I am going to be pulling on my personal comic book poll list and will be reading that we can then talk about on the Friday pick list. After that, we are going to very in-depth cover the Bad Batch finale, which premiered this past Friday on Disney+. Plus. It was an amazing episode and I'm very excited to talk about it. After that, we're going to have some news for the episode, um, starting off with one theory I have about Jason Todd in Titans, uh, some news about a new Wonder Woman project called Wonder Woman Evolution, a little bit of a downer on news about Star Trek's Nichelle Nichols, and then we will have some reminders about the Wednesday What If episode and the Shang-Chi movie coming out September 3rd. As usual, you can find me online, my social media, Instagram. You can find me at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I have the comics. On Twitter, I don't use it quite as much, but if you are looking for any updates on if there's a late episode or anything like that, a skipped episode, whatever the case may be, that is where I post those kinds of updates. My website is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the Weebly in there or you won't go anywhere. And that is where I post... Well, I had posted quite a bit of writing in the past before I started the podcast and sort of transferred what I would write about into just speaking about it for the podcast. So it has all of that backlogged content, as well as the podcast notes, which are the various notes that I take through the week so I don't get super off track going through the podcast. And I put those on the website to um, to have for anybody who prefers to read and keep up with a podcast as opposed to listen to my voice talk about things, or for anyone who is hearing impaired, they can also keep up with everything we discuss on the podcast that way. Also on my website, there are links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, including YouTube, which has all of the episodes in a playlist and also has action figure reviews, if that's anything that you're interested in. Uh, the the most recent action figure review, I believe, was the Coffin Comics Lady Death figure, which I was very pleased with. Although I do have to say that you can only watch that if you have a YouTube account um, logged in and you're over the age of 18 because it is risque, a bit of a risque figure, so I had to put the age limit on there just in case. But the next figure that I will be reviewing on that is going to be the SH Figure Arts Beerus, which hopefully will be arriving this week and I will have that video up this weekend. Um, I have the standard, well, I should say the, the beginner edition, and this is the $50 edition that's coming in. So I will be comparing the $20 version to the more expensive imported $50 version in that video. You can also find a podcast Patreon out there now, and there's, if you go on Patreon and look up Sensational She Geek, I have set up the Patreon for if you would like to donate to the podcast in some financial way. Uh, I would really appreciate that in the amount of money that gets donated to the podcast goes towards me making the podcast and therefore not having to spend a lot of time or as much time working a traditional job and instead making the podcast better and as good as it can be. And in the future, I would love to make the podcast even more excellent by adding in sound effects and intro music and things like that, transitions, you know, all that fun stuff that sounds super professional when it comes to podcasting. And the best way to get that would be to have the supporters through Patreon um, so I can focus more on my time on the podcast and less on a traditional job. 
Um, you can also support the podcast by, um, I have a Redbubble store now, which if you're unfamiliar with Redbubble, they set, you can put in your designs, your art designs, and they put it on basically anything. Stickers, magnets, mugs, t-shirts, cups, towels. <laughs> so I have a number of designs. Some of them are comic related and some of them are just kind of alternative related. Uh, but you can check that out. It is on Redbubble under She Geek Shop. As usual, if you are someone who wants to go ahead and skip by the comic book pull list and get into everything after, you're going to want to jump this this episode to about 53 and a half minutes in. I'll be wrapping that up and moving on to the Bad Batch finale. Kicking things off with a new comic book day pull list this week, there are a lot of really amazing comics coming out this week and a fair amount of number ones from across publishers that I'm extremely excited to pick up and read and I hope that you will be too and you'll find something within this comic book pull list that strikes your fancy and of course if you don't uh, but you still are interested in finding new comics to read please 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 contact your local comic book shop um, and they will be more than happy to help you find something that is right up your alley based on whatever other interests you might have and they will be more than thrilled to take some money in exchange for that comic because comic shops always need your financial help. Um, it's been a very, very long couple of years and with the switch-ups that are happening in the industry between distributors and publishers and formats and things like that, it's, it gets a little hard for them. So um, definitely check out your local comic shop if you want to pick up any of the comics that I am discussing here today or see what else there is out there for New Comic Book Day. Because remember, no matter what I discuss here on my New Comic Book Day pull list, there is always a plethora of other information and comic books that are out there. Really great stuff that I just don't have the time to read. It's just not up my alley. Whatever the case may be, there is so much good stuff out there. So don't get discouraged if nothing that I talk about when it comes to comic books really seems to be that much of interest with you, uh, for you. I promise you, you can find something out there that will strike your fancy right like you want. I don't know what that meant, right like you want, whatever. We started off here with X-Men, The Trial of Magneto, number one. This is not a big thing that I have to explain. I don't think at this point everybody pretty much knows what this is all about. Scarlet Witch is dead. She died at the- well, she was killed, apparently, at the end of the Hellfire Gala, found by the X-Factor team and her son, which was kind of sad. <laughs> Alt-reality son, I think, technically. I don't know how that really goes these days. But this is the trial of Magneto. So, clearly, um, what we're supposed to be thinking here is that Magneto is going on trial for the murder of Scarlet Witch because, as he has said many times, since Jonathan Hickman has taken over the X-Men reigns in general, he calls her the pretender. Um, he clearly has no love in his heart for her, or at least none that he is willing to show, and clearly holds a massive grudge for her various misdeeds against the mutant communities of past. So he is obviously going to be the number one um, the number one guess that people have for who actually killed Wanda here. Um, However, I get the feeling that this is a five-issue series, right? So I'm thinking it's not going to plan out that way. Um, I don't think Magneto was the one to kill her, and I don't think this entire issue is going to be putting Magneto on trial to find out if he's guilty. 
Five issues seems like a very long time to do that. I kind of get the feeling they're going to approach him in the first and second issues, and by the third issue, we'll know it wasn't Magneto, and Magneto will probably be on the trail of whoever the real perpetrator is. Um, and therefore, the trial of Magneto will have twofold meanings, right? The, the trial that Magneto is being on trial for, <laughs> whatever, you know what I mean, and the trial that Magneto puts on for finding the real killer. I hope you understand what I mean there, uh, but I'm kind of seeing this as a twofold title, and I hope it'll end up that way. I don't, I just don't really see it being an entire just Magneto on trial for five issues. That, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> we do have some really, really great variant covers for the first issue here. There are, I believe, 12 or 13 artists here, um, and they're, they're all pretty much fantastic. There's not a single one here that I would turn down if my comic shop gave it to me. So I'm, I'm planning on getting at least, oh gosh, I'm probably going to get three of these, to be honest. But here are the variant cover artists. If you are a kind of person who uh, collects specific variants because of whoever is on the cover or whatever is on the cover. And the artists here are Greg Capullo, Frank Darmada, David Finch, Stanley Artgerm Lau, John Romita Jr., Gabrielle Delato, Mark Brooks, Todd Nock, Philip Massafera, Elizabeth Torquette, Alan Kwa, and Peach Momoko. And once again, I am terrible at pronouncing names. I apologize for any name that I mispronounce on this episode. I promise I am not trying to. <laughs> And the solicitation for this, if you are curious what it says about the first issue, it's a very short solicitation here. So it says, The story that will shake Krakoa to its core. A horrific murder. A shocking revelation. A trial that will divide the new mutant nation. Leia Williams and Lucas Wernick bring you a new epic that threatens the reign of X and will upend the world of mutants. The truth is hidden, the danger is far from over, and the trial has begun. As I said, I don't think this is going to be entirely Magneto on trial. I think it's going to be a lot of him running the trial, possibly once they find out that he's not guilty. Um, there's been a lot of convoluted plot <laughs> happening in the X-Factor um, series that Leah Williams just finished, which was phenomenal, and I definitely recommend checking that out. It was only 10 issues, so it's not that much to, to catch up on, and it's so, so easy and fun to read. Um, but there's been a lot of body swapping and taking over people's minds and dying and coming back and being tricked and stuff like that that kind of happened throughout the X Factor series, and so no doubt that is going to leak into the trial of Magneto here, um, because I'm based on some previews that came out. I'm pretty much expecting this to be a continuation of Leah Williams's X Factor series. Basically 11 through 15 is what these will be. Um, because we know that the X Factor team are going to be doing a lot of the investigating with this trial. Um, but Polaris is not part of the team anymore because she is now on the main X-Men team. So no doubt that will also be a factor in stuff that happens with this trial, because once again, Polaris is a daughter of Magneto. I don't think Scarlet Witch necessarily is at this point in comics history, but that's another thing. The whole convoluted BS that is Scarlet Witch and Pietro's, um, Wanda and Pietro's parentage, um, that was very shuffled and muddled in the past couple of years. Hopefully by the end of the series will be a lot clearer, and hopefully we will kind of have an idea of where the hell Pietro is. I think he's still dead, but we haven't seen him in Reign of X, Dawn of X, anything like that, so I would like to have him be brought into this. Who knows, maybe it's Pietro who killed her, and he's back, and we just don't know that. 
that would be kind of cool, actually. I think the last time we, the last time I read anything about him was after um, Decimation, I believe. Um, and he had that series where he went to uh, Atalan and he was talking to his wife, well, his ex-wife there um, and his daughter. And he tried to get his powers back, but then he ends up kind of dying. It's a really weird series, but that's the last time I read anything with him. So who knows where he's been since... Gosh, I don't know when that was, but um, hope, I'm hoping Trial of Magneto will really smooth out their histories and give us a, a really solid canon to grasp onto for their characters and who's related to who. <laughs> Starting off with some of the indie number ones that we have coming out this week is Eat the Rich number one. This has a fantastic Jenny Frizen variant. It's actually got a couple versions of a Jenny Frizen variant. I <laughs> a big, big fan of her artwork. Um, so I highly recommend that whenever I see it. It is going to be just a five-issue series, so you're not signing on to something for a very long time here. It's going to be less than six months and it's all complete. Uh, it's going to be written by Sarah Gailey and drawn by Pius Back. And I have a solicitation here was the best way that I can figure out how to explain it. What unspeakable horror eats away at the heart of Crestfall Bluffs? With law school and her whole life ahead of her, Joey plans summer, her name is Joey, plans to summer with her boyfriend Aster in the seemingly perfect hometown of Crestfall Bluffs. It's a chance to finally meet Aster's family and childhood friends, all while enjoying a vacation with every need attended to by servants. But beneath the affluent perfection lies a dark, deadly rot. Will Joey discover the truth before it's too late? And if she does, can she survive the tale to tell the tale? And this is, um, Sarah Gailey is a Hugo Award-winning author. She is known for The Echo Wife and Magic for Liars, which is one that I'm familiar with. And artist Pius Back is known for Firefly and The Magician's Comic. If you were, uh, if you read that, I believe it was a year or two ago that that came out. And it says here that it's good for fans of Stillwater, which is a Chip Sarsky series that I really enjoy, so count me in. Once again, it is only going to be five issues, so you're not signing your life away to a long-term comic series. God of Tremors number one is also going to be a shorter thing. It's actually going to be a one-shot, and it is magazine format. Um, how I'm kind of seeing this is if you read Eden that came out as magazine format about a month or two ago, the God of Tremors would probably be a lot along that lines in your hands. Um, it is written by Peter Milligan and Piotr Kowalski. Once, once again, it is a one-shot, and here is what the solicitation says it is about. A 19th century gothic horror of exorcism, demonic worship, and epilepsy. When Audrey has his first... Ooh, Aubrey has his first seizure. He's pulled out of school and hidden away in the family's remote country estate. His father, a high-ranking English priest, tries to chase the devil out of Aubrey, but maybe the devil lurks in the grotesque pagan effigy that dwells on the grounds, and maybe the devil will turn out to be Aubrey's only ally. A singular tale of nightmarish terror and creeping enlightenment told by a, against a backdrop of ignorance and brutality, God of Tremors springs from the fertile imagination of world-winning writer Peter Milligan and Ill illustrations from Piotr Kowalski. Uh, Milligan is known for stories like Out of Body, Change, Shade the Changing Man, and X-Force, and Kowalski is known for Join the Future and, apparently, Sex, which is a comic, I guess. <laughs> Another indie number one coming out, but is an ongoing series, as far as I can tell, is called Second Chances. To be completely honest, I 
might not end up picking this one up um, because it does kind of fall along the lines of a few other series that sound very similar that I didn't really enjoy. Um, but it is by Ricky Mamone and Max Bert Bertolini. Ooh, I wonder if he's married, if he knows Helena Bertolini. That's not right, is it? <laughs> Making a hot girl joke or hot girl. Oh, that's not her name. Huntress. <laughs> Huntress joke. Helena Bertinelli. Bertinelli, that's what it is, not Bertolini. I got off track here. The solicitation for Second Chances says that it is about Second Chances Hotline. Call now and get a new identity. All you need is some cash, a proper referral, and a good reason to start over. When LeBlanc, the man behind the hotline, is approached by a shady figure from his past, he's forced to accept a new client who doesn't meet any of the requirements. A client with chemically induced amnesia and need, desperate need of protection. Sounds kind of interesting. I'm kind of on the fence myself if I'm going to pick it up. The solicitation also says that it is a bizarre noir that feels like John Wick, John Wick punching through an existential French New Wave fever dream. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. Another one, indie one number one coming out this week is Killer Queens. This one is actually only going to be four issues, so even shorter than the rest. Um, Obviously, it, the title Killer Queens brings up some ideas, and yes, it is about queer people. It says, meet Max and Alex, reformed intergalactic assassins for hire, on the run, also super gay. Their former boss, a fluffy monkey with a jetpack, is hot on their tail to take back his stolen ship. They gotta eat, so they take a mission from Alex's old flame. Your standard no-kill, casualty-free kidnapping recovery from a nearby moon. Only complication, half the moon is ruled by a fascist dictator, dis dictator hostile to foreigners. They're the killer queens, so what could possibly go wrong? Join rising star M. Boer and an all-LGBTQ creative team as they tackle issues of love, xenophobia, and the terror of fascist dictatorships in this hilarious sci-fi epic. It does sound hilarious. Uh, it sounds right up my alley, to be honest, and to make things even better, there is a gorgeous variant cover by Jen Bartel, who I am an art collector of, so this kind of feels like it's the perfect comic for me, in a way. <laughs> As the solicitation said, it is written by David A. Neuer, who is known for the comic Canto, which I think is a fairly recent one, as well as Alien Bounty Hunter, so clearly sci-fi is in his alley. And then it will be drawn by Claudia Balboni, um, and I have no information on her, I apologize, but it sounds fun. Uh, let's see, going into a number one from Marvel is Kang the Conqueror number one. We are all, of course, very recently familiar with Kang, for anybody who was not before, because of the recent Loki show that he appeared in, played by Jonathan Majors, absolutely brilliantly, in my opinion. This series is a kind of... Uh, we knew this was coming sort of thing because whenever you get characters, not whenever, but when you, it tends to be a pattern that when you get characters who show up in the MCU, they have a bit of a resurgence in the comics. The most obvious <laughs> uh, example of this is Iron Man. Um, Iron Man was not a popular character when they announced they would be making his movie uh, coming out in 2008. And now that is very much not the case. So um, Kang showing up in the comics with his own series makes a lot of sense after having seen him in Loki, as well as knowing that he is going to pop up as a new villain, presumably in uh, Quantumania, which is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Is it three or is it Ant-Man and the Wasp two? 
or just Ant-Man 3, whatever you want to call it. It's Quantumania. This is going to be by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, who are the writers, and it's going to have art by Carlos Magno and Espen Grungetern. Oh god, I'm sorry. That was probably really terrible. Grungetern. It's got a J in it. <laughs> it is only going to be five issues, so again, not a long thing to sign your whole life away to. What the solicitation says here is pretty basic, so knowing about Kang and his character, this is going to be a nice series to familiar yourself with him, or familiarize yourself with him before, and everything he's involved with and everything that's kind of um, in his playbook before we see him whenever it will be next in the MCU, because I have a feeling we might see him in Multiverse of Madness. The origin of Kang. The man called Kang the Conqueror has been a pharaoh, a villain, a warlord of spaceways, and even, on rare occasions, a hero. Across all timelines, one fact seemed absolute. Time means nothing to Kang the Conqueror. But the truth is more complex. Kang is caught in an endless cycle of creation and destruction dictated by time and previously unseen by any but the Conqueror himself. A cycle that could finally explain the enigma that is Kang. A cycle that begins and ends with an old and broken Kang, sending his younger self down a dark path. I mean, that sounds pretty awesome. We know Kang has all these multiple versions of himself. We know that uh, they are a wide span of characters. Um, and we know that he has a very strange way about him. Um, it says here, the cycle that could finally explain the enigma that is Kang. It's a very enigma. That's a good word to describe him. Um, he is a descendant of Reed Richards as well as Victor Von Doom. What a combo. Of course, it's from, I believe, uh, the year 3000 or something like that, um, or possibly the 30th century. I, I can never remember what, what time period he traditionally comes from when we first see him in the comics, but he is a descendant of those two amazing minds. Uh, specifically, Valeria Richards is actually who he is the descendant of, if you want to go that way, which I think personally is pretty cool. Um, if you read the Christopher Cantwell uh, Doctor Doom series that was about, I think it was a 2019 series is when it started, that had Kang popping up in it a fair amount because he just kind of pops up on Doom's timeline. That goes into part of what the Enigma is. They have a weird connection, and I imagine that that's going to be explored in depth in these five issues, especially since uh, the second or third issue has Doom on the cover. So we can definitely assume that that relationship, whatever it may be, that connection is going to be explored in this series um, and possibly brought into the MCU in some way. Um, there's a lot of options with that, so I'm very curious to read this and kind of see how it feels they're going to take him for the MCU. Going into number twos, <laughs> uh, Man Eaters of the Cursed. Can't, can't tell you enough how much you're going to enjoy this if you read this. This is the third series coming from the same t creative team. Uh, writer Chelsea Kane, artist Leah Mitternik, and Kate Niesmek. Oh gosh, Niemsik, I'm sorry. Uh, colorist Rachel Rosenberg and letterer Joe Karamanga. The first series that this group did together was just Maneaters. It was 12 issues. It blew my mind. It is dry humor, metaphor, and overblown comparisons to get you to see what the point, you know, it's fantastic. The second series they did together was Spy Island. It was only four issues, but it is probably one of my all-time favorite miniseries 
period in comics. Um, same world as Maneaters, but completely different setting. Now, Maneaters The Curse is a follow-up to the first Maneaters series. It's only going to be five issues, so one more than Spy Island had, but less than half than the original Maneaters series had. Already, based off the first issue, um, this is truly phenomenal. <laughs> this sarcasm, the humor, the snark, it's just so perfect and so clearly created by smart women. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> uh, there's only a line or two of a solicitation here, so I'll go over that real quickly. And it's pretty funny. <laughs> important camp waiver. It's very important to read all the materials before arriving at craft camp. Craft camp is not responsible for disappearances, maiming, special trauma, or other camp mishaps. I feel like you get a pretty good vibe of the comic based on that. It's really funny. This one, you may would, you may want some of the backstory from Maneaters, but I want to say that it's not entirely necessary. I think for the most part, all the information you need is given still, um, and it's only had the one issue. So feel free, jump in with Maneaters of the Curse, or go back and read the first two volumes of Maneaters and Spy Island if you're going to do that, because this was an, another excellent one, and it's only four issues. You can make time for that. But I can't, once again, I, I really cannot recommend Maneaters the Curse enough, truly. Savage Hearts number two, I am very excited for. I was a little bit on the fence about even picking up the first issue, but I did, and I am very glad. Um, it follows two characters that are kind of hard to describe. Um, uh, big burly lady in armor, and little dwarf dude no not dwarf little little tree he's got horns so he's not a demon whatever the one of those goat things are called um and he like meets her and falls in love with her and she's like i don't care i just need a guide um but there's a lot of heart to it and a lot of depth to it that I didn't honestly expect going into it um there seems to be that there's going to be a good amount of meet to their backstories, especially Bronwyn, the woman who is the soldier, um, and that is going to lead us up to whatever the the real plot of this is going to be, and not just a little love story. Uh, the solicitation is pretty cute, I gotta say. I wasn't going to put it on here. It's very short, but um, it just says, Peter and Mary Jane, Clark and Lois, Bronwyn and Grau. Comets gets its new favorite couple in this jungle fantasy romantic comedy from Aubrey Sitterson and Jed Doherty. Aubrey Sitterson is the writer. She is known for... That could be a man. I'm sorry. Um, they are known for No One Left to Fight, the comic book story of professional wrestling. And Jed Doherty is known for World's Finest and apparently Harley Quinn, but not any that I'm familiar with. Savage Hearts is only going to be five issues. So once again, don't worry about losing your entire life, you know, savings to picking up this series. Superman and the Authority number two, once again, just a four-issue series. But what's remarkable about this in a couple of ways, at least from my perspective, this is the last DC Comics work, pretty much ever as far as they're saying, that Grant Morrison will ever write. It's a big deal. Grant Morrison has been with DC for a good while. Um, they've put out some truly remarkable work with the publisher. Um... So them coming out and kind of openly stating this is the last thing I'm going to do for DC, it feels like a bit of a big deal, especially with the massive mark that they are leaving behind them on the publisher. 
amazing legacy. Uh, Morrison is writing this alongside artist Mikhail Janin with Jordi Belair as the colorist. Um, there was an interesting thing that came out before the first issue of this, and that was the announcement, or rather the news, that DC Comics and Diamond, I guess, um, would allow comic shops to return the first two issues that go unsold because of some reason. Uh, that's not something they ever really do, but for whatever reason, DC slash Diamond felt the need to put that available to um, comic shops so that if they order a bunch, it's a Grant Morrison comic, they're a pretty big name. If the comic shops order a bunch of comics and they don't sell, they have the chance to return them then to the publisher slash distributor. That's not something that's very common in comic book publishing. Um, and that is a big part of why comic shops struggle a lot because it's a gamble in a way. Everything you buy is a, is a bit of a gamble when you're a comic shop, if it's going to sell or not. Um, so having them make this a returnable comic for the first two issues out of four issues is a very interesting thing for me. Uh, my husband and I talked about a lot, our theories on what it is necessarily that uh, made DC make that decision especially if this is also Grant Morrison's last DC work. Um, after reading the first issue, I had a theory that perhaps Superman was queer in some way, um, which I'll get into in a second, but my husband believes that it is probably, and he might be actually more right, that it has to do with the politics of Superman, um, specifically with like conspiracies and stuff like that that he was involved with. Um, I'm honestly not sure what it is, and in the second issue, maybe we'll get that a little more clear, but there is some kind of weird secret or reveal that happened with the Superman, um, and that's why I was thinking, oh, maybe he's queer, um, because there was a night, uh, a line that he said to Manchester, or rather Manchester Black said to him, to Clark Kent, saying, when you told the world who you really were, and they turned their back on you, and my mind immediately went to, oh, he came out, and they didn't like it. However... My husband actually had a really good point that I didn't think of at all uh, until he mentioned it. Bendis just did the thing where Superman came out as being Clark Kent, no longer having a super identity. That could be what he's referencing here as the world turned against you. It could also be um, some kind of political conspiracy that he got embroiled in because we saw that there was some Reagan stuff going on. Not Reagan. Um, whatever president it was. Gosh. Kennedy is the name I'm looking for here. Wow, it was, that was pretty bad. Um, but whatever the case may be, I'm, I'm hoping in this second issue that we get that a little bit more solidified, what it was that Superman announced or revealed to the world that they turned against him with. Another thing that kind of made me think that perhaps he is queer in this reality is that there wasn't the first lines we see from Superman is ladies, gentlemen, and everyone else. While Grant Morrison is a non-binary person, it's very, well, I, delightful, honestly. I was delighted to see that, okay? I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I thought that was sick as hell that he put that in there. Sorry, that they put that in there. Um, but that was another thing that I was like, well, that's not really something that Superman really, you know, bothers himself to say, so maybe that's why he says it, because he himself is queer, and so he's involving more queer people in when he speaks. I don't know. Um... The final thing about this is we know that this is a Superman who is not from the canon comics. He is an older Superman. He is not as old as the Superman that we see in 
the House of L, which was the future state stuff where he is like thousands of years old. It's nothing like that. This is probably real world, like 60, 50 year old Superman, something like that. And he is losing his powers, which is interesting because Grant Morrison also wrote uh, All-Star Superman, which was a story where Superman, through Luther means, gets basically infected by the radiation of the sun and his powers start multiplying. He's going to die in the end. That was the whole the whole point of it. But uh, before he dies, his powers start multiplying. Um, and so it's kind of funny. He gets more powerful in that. And then here in Superman and the Authority, he's losing his powers. So um, whatever, whatever ends up happening with this, I'm pretty sure I'm going to dig the hell out of all four issues. I definitely love the first one. I don't even know who Manchester Black is. Not at all familiar with that character. Um, he seems kind of like a really flamboyant um Constantine John Constantine <laughs> um I don't know I don't know he's he must be some kind of old school character 90s thing or something but um I I, I like him I like their their dialogue and their interactions here um and before I go too far on about this we'll read the solicitation and move on <laughs> Clark Kent and Manchester Black continue to put Superman's new team together, even though keeping Black in check seems like a seems like just as difficult a job as convincing the new recruits to come along. The pair hits different parts of the world looking for different types of heroes, while Midnighter, Apollo, and Natasha Irons only need to tie up some loose ends before getting on board. The Enchantress is going to be a little harder. Superman is going to have to set her free from a deadly illusion, hell-bent on destroying her, before she can help him save the universe. And we still don't necessarily know why he needs this team. That's, that's me now. It's not in solicitation. Um, we're not we're not aware of those reasons yet. So that's something that we can potentially find out in this issue as well. Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number three. This is by Tom King and Bilquis Evely with Matt Lopez on colors. It is th number three out of an eight total issues that will be coming out. And this month's variant cover is by David Mack. And it's quite nice. Um, I'll just read the solicitation. I, I will say before that, though, this is a fantastic series. I'm a big fan of Tom King's writing. He's writing this in a very different way than he normally does. Um, and it is incredibly intriguing. And I am just thrilled with how he is writing Kara. What it says here is, Supergirl's journey across the cosmos continues. Her hunt to bring the killer Krem to justice brings her and the young alien in her care to a small planet where they discover that they are still some very small... There are still some very small minds, even on the outer edges of the galaxy. The cold welcome the locals give the Woman of Steel makes her suspicious enough to go looking for secrets they want to keep buried, and what she finds is nothing short of horrifying. Can she and Ruthie get off the planet alive now that these deadly sins have been exposed? This is something I definitely know and have seen Tom King being very good about, and has already been very good about in this series for the first two issues that we've only had. Um, making things dire and writing very dark scenarios in a way that is um, ev ev feels very real. Um, not necessarily relatable, but just feels like that is a real tragedy that is happening on the page. Um, and so I'm really, whatever it is that's going to happen on this next planet, I'm super stoked to see it. Um, still not sure if... Crypto the Super Dog is alive or not. Uh, maybe we'll find that out in this issue too. 
Jonah and the Impossible Monsters number five is coming out this week. It is the start of a new arc where Jonah and Rainbow are going off with this new guy who is helping them supposedly find their father, but uh, he clearly has something else going up, going on up his sleeve, as we saw in the last issue. This is written by Chris and Laura Samney. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many issues this is going to be. I really thought that this fifth issue was going to be the final issue. However, it has seven solicited and it is not specified on the Diamond website how many there are going to be where it does specify on a lot of the other miniseries. So unsure what, uh, how many issues Jonah and the Impossible Monsters will be, but it has been a delightful read of cartoony childlike joy and mystery um, for definitely an all-ages audience. I think you could read this as a teenager, possibly even a preteen or younger, um, and you can definitely read it as an adult as I am and still get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Home number five, I would argue, is also a bit of an all-ages comic, although it touches on a lot darker real-world truths, <laughs> like immigration in America. It's not really a great thing that happens. We got a lot of BS around that that people have to deal with, so uh, especially if they're coming from the South. So that's, you know... Uh, um, this only has one sentence in the solicitation. It says, Juan's rage comes to a head and the world will never be the same again. Because this is a final issue by Julio Anta and Anna Wiesek. Oh god, I'm sorry. W-I-E-S-Z-C-Z-Y-K. That's why I had, a tri had a trouble saying that. Wiesek. I don't know, man. I tried. Um, this series has been about a young, I believe, Guatemalan boy um, coming up north to the U.S. border at Texas um, with his mother. They get separated. She gets sent home. He has powers, and that's part of why they're fleeing their home country, because his father was killed for his powers, and now the son is showing the powers, so she needed to flee the country with him. Um, they get separated, and he ends up getting into the U.S., through using his powers kind of on accident and finding his aunt. Um, and now we're kind of gonna, I don't want to give away too much, but it's the last issue. Um, whoever the letterer is on this, I have to give kudos to because they do a great job in being able to show very clearly when the character is speaking English versus Spanish um, with, the, with the lettering. And that's something a lot of comics fans and readers kind of forget to stop and appreciate is stuff like the uh, letterers and sometimes even colorists. But this is one that you actually are kind of constantly reminded that they put in a good amount of work and thought into this. Um, and it's nice to be able to pay attention to that every now and then, you know. Superman Red and Blue number six is the final issue of the Superman anthology series. I will be picking up this issue where I have not been picking up any of the others because it includes stories by Tom King, Matt Wagner, Sophie Campbell, Darcy Little Badger, and Rex Ogle with art by Matt Wagner, Sophie Campbell, Steve Pugh, and Paolo Rivera. Um, I'm not entirely sure what any of the stories are going to be about, but I know that the last time I picked up an anthology book that had a story by both Tom King and Sophie Campbell in it, I loved it. Like, way more than I expected. I believe that was a Batman black and white issue. Um, but this Superman Red and Blue, we'll be picking this one up for those creators. There's also a stellar variant cover by Gabrielle Delato if you are a fan of his stupendous 
traditional uh, classically trained style of art, like Renaissance style of art. He's fantastic. Another Tom King is, well, there's three Tom King books coming out this week between Supergirl, uh, Superman Red and Blue, which is an anthology book, granted, and Batman Catwoman number six. This is Tom King with Clay Mann this time, who is easily one of the best artists in comics right now, if not like top five, top three, maybe. Um, I've explained Batman Catwoman several times on this podcast, so I'm not going to do it right now. Um, you can go and look at some of my previous episodes if you would like to get a little bit of insight on what it is that um, is kind of their whole relationship that Tom King has been following from the start. I'm looking right now. I'm trying to find the last time that I did that. I believe it was in the 20s somewhere. Um, I'm looking on my episode list to see the last time that I talked about Batman and Catwoman. Here we go. Episode 20B, I believe. Oh no, 20A is where the last time that I went through the entire explanation of Tom King's relationship between Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle as he has written it for the past five years, 2016. Yeah, five years. So it's been a long road coming, um, but he writes their romance. Oh God, <laughs> I can't even describe how amazing it is. I will read the solicitation here. As mysteries deepen, so do the resentments. Throughout her life, Catwoman's actions have caused many close, close to her to doubt her motivations. Bruce Wayne, Phantasm, and now her daughter have ha all had their suspicions about how her, about her deals with the Joker. And when she killed the, the old clown, did it trigger the feline's ninth life? Or maybe it was really all over, oh gosh, I can't read today, really over all those years ago, the first time Phantasm drew her blood and Batman had to face a harsh truth. There are big revelations waiting to be found here at the halfway point in Tom Key and Clayman's final word on the Batcat romance. There's also going to be a annual for this series coming out, I want to say, in September? Um, so don't miss that because it's going to have another chapter of the relationship that will take place in their childhood. Um, so it's going to connect them all the way back into that far into their past, going all the way forward into Bruce's end of life and Selena's more than likely end of life at the end of the series. Homesick Pilots number eight. This was one of those series that I am just fell head over heels with in the first issue. Um, the last issue was very, well, the last couple of issues have been very revelatory with um, new things being brought into the story and building the plot. However, I believe this might be ending at 10 issues. Um, the 10th issue is coming out in October, which is as far as solicitations have come. However, the solicitation for the 10th issue looks like a bit of a wrap up. Um, so we'll kind of see what, what we're doing. I, I hoped it would be ongoing for a little bit while longer because the amount of plot that they developed in the last couple of issues and left room for. So it will be, um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Wait until we get November solicitations and see if Homesick Pilots will be involved. This is by Dan Waters, who is the writer, and Kaspar Wingard. I'm sorry, I said that wrong, I'm sure. Uh, with a variant cover this month by Martin Simmons. Uh, Wingard has been doing a truly phenomenal job with the art on this series, as well as the covers, was still art. Um, and I'm also really pleased that for the first time, I want to say two weeks ago, I actually saw his name on 
uh, variant covers for other comics. So he's starting to get out there. His style is phenomenal. It's very recognizable as well, I believe, in my opinion at least. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to see that I'm starting to see his name in more places, because I will definitely start collecting his art if it starts getting out there more. Black Cat number nine. I'm, I think this was the second to last issue. I'm so mad. I only found this out today. There's only there's only a solicitation for number ten, and that's it. I, I, why do they keep doing this? <laughs> I, they had this is Legacy twenty one, right? So they only had twelve issues of her first series, and now they're gonna do ten issues of a second series. At least match the twelve. Come on. And her first series was canceled only because of COVID, too, is another thing that I have to mention. Um, and I'm still bitter about that. Just like Scream had a series that was canceled due to COVID, the Doctor Doom Cantwell series was canceled due to COVID and also due to Al Ewing, or sorry, um, Dan Slott's horrific Fantastic Four plans for him. Um, and by that I mean truly tragic and terrible writing. Um, but why do they keep getting... This is the best... This is one of the best female solo series I have ever read. Um, same as the first arc of it, or the first series of, that Jed McKay did, 12 issues. Why do they keep cutting him so short? There is a huge following for this series. People really enjoy it. Why do they keep stopping her series right when it gets going really well? Ugh. <sighs> Again, Jed McKay with artist Carlos Villa. Um... The solicitation is real short, it just says the hottest new character of the last five years, Star, brings her reality warping powers to bear in the black cat. In the black cat, whatever. Who hired Felicia to do this job? Why do they want this infinite power? And how does Felicia think she's going to live through this? So Star, if you're not familiar, is a villainess who came out of cow. Sorry, I just bent my arthritic finger back too far. Came out of <laughs> uh Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel, um, I want to say 2018 uh, and she had a five issue series of her own that actually got due to COVID they finished it eventually but it it was out on digital before it came out on print for like almost a year um, or six months or something whatever the time the timeline for that all bullshit was um, so she, the thing about her that makes her a supervillain is she has the reality stone embedded in her chest and she can use it. Um, I had always kind of thought that Star would see her end when Thanos comes knocking for the reality gems once again, because we all know that he will at some point, um, and probably in the next year, we're going to have another infinity thing with Thanos. I have no doubt. That's just what they do at Marvel. Um... So now Felicia taking on Star, trying to get the reality stone out of her. This might be the end of Star. Um, as far as I can tell, it kills her if she has that removed from her. So um, she's going to have to kill her if she wants that. So I'm not sure how this is going to go, to be honest. And I kind of blame this whole Infinite Destinies event. That's not really an event, but is some reason taking over the Black Cat story. Um, I kind of blame that for her series ending, if that's really what's going to happen in issue 10. Because it's not a very fun event. It's been very boring so far, uh, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> Iron Man number 11. I am reading this for Patsy Walker. Um, 
it's it's more Korvac stuff. It's going to feature Patsy in here, so that's all I really care about. Um, it says also featuring another appearance by everyone's favorite armored Canadian hero, Avro X, whoever that is, and Stiltman, who I guess Christopher Cantwell really likes. Christopher Cantwell does write this. Um, he's done a really fantastic job writing Patsy's trauma and her reactions to things involving that trauma that have still been recurring things and events um, without making her deal with all of this crap on her own, which is why it was so problematic in the past. So kudos to Cantwell for writing Patsy really, really well. I hope that she gets a couple more um, showcases, I guess, in this series before she stops being a character in it. Uh, he had made some jokes on Twitter about how the Iron Man series was secretly his way to get a Patsy solo book, um, but that was quite some time ago when the series first started and she was had a couple of very, very intense issues. Um, she's kind of been on the back page, back burner, I guess, for a little bit since then. Um, so hoping that these next couple of issues get her a lot more involved with the plot again. We're getting towards the end of the pull list here with Spider-Woman number 14 by Carlo Pacheco and Pere Perez. Carla has done a truly amazing job with revamping the Spider-Woman series to a place that is far better than any of her last series have taken her, in my fair opinion. Um, and she is just killing it with all of the characterization, all of the history, all of the adding to her world. I just, I just love all of that. She's doing a fantastic job and she's hilarious while she does it. Uh, I will read the solicitation. I seem to be doing that for all of them here, but oh well. It says, do you think just because there were some done in one crazy action issues, that this arc wasn't serious? You are wrong, true believer, as this issue picks up all the Kaiser Soze clues we've been leaving around and slaps you in the face with them. All we can say without spoiling more in this more is that Jessica Drew is in it for the fight of her life and you do not want to miss it. Recently, Carla Pacheco has created a character that is actually Jessica Drew's brother. Um, I'm pretty sure it's real. I'm pretty sure he's not a fake brother because that's the thing that happens in comics sometimes too. And he's got a daughter who I am also pretty sure is a real daughter and not a fake daughter because that happens in some comics sometimes as well. Um, but the mother, the mother was fake. Uh, she was a robot or clones or something. Um, it's been a long road and it's been hilarious, but at the same time, very heartfelt. Uh, also recently in the comic, Jessica was kind of dumped by uh, Porcupine, who was her villain turned boyfriend. Not baby daddy. As far as we know, still, it was just a random sperm sample that she made herself pregnant with to get her baby uh, Jerry Drew. Um, who is starting to show powers now, and I love it. <laughs> it's hilarious. I don't know how many times I need to say hilarious to make you understand that Carla Pacheco is an amazing Spider-Woman writer and should never be taken off the series. As far as I can tell, it is going to be ongoing into the future, and I hope it never gets canceled. I, I mean it. I never want this to stop. Marauders number 23, Gary Duggan, and uh, I believe a new artist. Oh, sorry, Jerry Duggan. I learned that it's actually Jerry, not Gary, even though it's a G. It's a GE, so that's why I guess Jerry. Whatever. Uh, the artist here, I believe, is a new artist for the series, Ivan Fiorelli. Um, I was not a big fan of the guy who was doing Art on Marauders for a long time. Is He drew Kate like a teenager, and she's not a teenager. We've established that she's older now. 
Um, it says here, screaming into battle as new problems face mutant kind in Ireland, the Marauders bring in Banshee for some assistance, because he's Irish. Meanwhile, one prominent member of Verendi has their mind changed. That last bit, I'm pretty sure, refers to the little blonde girl who was one of the Verendi people, who the cuckoos keep messing with her head for some reason, but she's like, the more they mess with her head and show her, I guess, who she really is, she's like, losing it. So... I think she keeps accidentally killing animals, too, was something that was revealed recently as well. So is there something up with this kid, this blonde kid who the cuckoos have an interest in for some reason? Um, I don't think I'm really missing something. I just think it hasn't been revealed yet, but I could be wrong. I'm enjoying it either way. <laughs> Finally, the last thing we're going to talk about here is Catwoman number 34. I am not reading this series very much. <laughs> no, let me, let me try that again. Rephrase that. I am not really thoroughly enjoying the series too well i i skim it i i truly skim it um and the reason that i'm still buying it while i all i do is skim it and not really enjoy the writing um it's got jenny frizen covers um and they're truly phenomenal um you gotta look these things up if you don't know what i'm talking about look up jenny frizen catwoman covers and just be in awe because they are so amazing i will keep collecting the series as long as she keeps doing the variants for it and as long as poison ivy or and or as long as poison ivy is in it that is a second reason why i keep reading it or collecting it rather is um poison ivy is having some kind of something happening in it um and hopefully she will continue to be in it, I guess, because I'm a really big fan of her and she's kind of been backplated. There's been a lot of effort to get her character moving forward into a new place, but it seems that there's kind of dueling ideas of what that place should be. Um, so I'm very much hoping that this is going to... Between this and whatever BS Tinian is writing in Batman, I'm hoping it's going to solidify a new path for Catwoman to be... Um, I'm sorry, for Poison Ivy to be a more um, viewable character in the DC Comics universe. Because she's really, like I said, she's kind of been backplated. She is a fan favorite character. They have lots of readers who would read a comic with her. So uh, it's about time they put uh, Poison Ivy back in a little bit of a spotlight for a while, don't you think? Okay, folks, let's talk Star Wars The Bad Batch Episode 16, a.k.a. the finale, a.k.a. Camino Lost. Um, I'm actually going to start with this instead of ending with it. Um, if you, like, look up stuff about this episode, you'll find uh, Google's tends to suggest this inverse article. Don't read that article. They are wrong about a lot of stuff. The only thing they had right about that was that um, a character we see in the end is wearing a similar outfit to a character we see in Mandalorian, which I'll talk about when we get there. Um, but they had a lot of stuff wrong. The character of Nala Say, they kept calling by the male character's name, um, obviously not correct. And they kept calling the episode title Camino is Lost, which again, is not correct and is a very easy thing for their editors to have fat checked. So just recommendation don't read the inverse article about the finale because it sucks. <laughs> I found out the hard way. Okay, so anyway, moving on into the better stuff. Uh, Kamina Lost. Really stupendous episode, in my opinion. Um, 
things kick off right where the last one ended, of course, with the Empire ships opening fire on the big city of Kamino as a way to demolish it. It's kind of nuts. It was kind of nuts to watch because uh, when we think of demolishing buildings, first of all, we don't usually think of ships doing that in the air, um, like planes or stuff like that. Um, we tend to think of like things on the ground demolishing the stuff. So it was, it was pretty wild or, or, you know, charges demolishing stuff. It was pretty wild to see them just, yeah, okay, we're just, we're not going to, you know, do anything official. We're just going to open fire on it until it sinks and then we're going to (laughs) go. It's like the kind of a lazy way of doing it, but I guess it works. It was just really wild to see them just, yeah, we're just going to shoot it into the ocean. (laughs) It worked. It definitely worked. (laughs) Um... The Batch are still inside, though, including Omega and Crosshair and Omega's bot, AZ, who looks a lot like Herbie from the Fantastic Four. Um, Things are obviously quite dire as the station falls apart and blows apart around them, being sunk into the planet's ocean surface. Omega, Crosshair, and AZ get separated from the rest of the group when a door opens, I'm sorry, a door closes between them, and they end up getting stuck in a room that is flooding. Um, while the station is still sinking. So the batch have to hurry, the rest of the batch have to hurry and break that door down in order to save them. Um, it all works out pretty much by the skin of their teeth, which is a saying I never really understood, but feels very appropriate here. Um, and actually Crosshair did get knocked unconscious at one point here and it was up to, or rather not knocked unconscious, but, um, he got stuck. Um, and Omega had to come back and get on, go underwater to save him because the room was very rapidly filling up with water and he would have drowned if she didn't do that. So uh, she did save him to some people's surprise, including the rest of the batch and his own surprise, Crosshair. Um, then once they were finally reunited and slightly safer than a moment before, uh, reunited as a group, the batch try to get to high ground Um, whatever that might mean, but the station starts sinking faster, um, and they end up hitting the ocean floor, which, the few points here, um, that was scary. (laughs) It's one thing to be stuck at the bottom of the ocean in a safe, sturdy structure, um, but this, this was them stuck at the bottom of the ocean in a tin can that was quickly disintegrating. (laughs) Um... I I was pretty I'm one of those people with sub mechanophobia. Um yeah, that woof, that's kind of scary. <laughs> uh seeing seeing the 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 Camino station going and just hitting the bottom of the ocean. That that was yep, yeah, nightmare material for me. <laughs> uh another point there. Um I really thought that the ocean floor in this seemed very close, but Upon more thought, I guess it could just be one section of the Camino Ocean that's, you know, the ground level is higher up, um, and that's why they built the city there, because it was more accessible to rooting into the ground. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm trying. Um, the situation gets even more dire um, than ever on the ocean floor with the seams of the room that they're in starts leaking pretty bad. However, Omega is the one to spot where they landed. It was on top of that tube system from a few episodes ago that transports people all over Camino, and because of this, they're able to access the tube system and get, well, with the idea of getting to the base where Omega first showed them they were made, and then after that, getting to the next base along the tube system, which is where they have their ship parked up top of the water. 
Um, so they end up getting into the tube system, which normally you have a little uh, like elevator cart thing that takes you along. However, electricity is not really working right now, so they have to walk through it. The tube is full of... It's, it's very dark, of course, because the water is dark, and it's glass, and it's got all this cracks and growing cracks, and it's just getting worse and worse as they go through it. Um, and then to make matters even worse, on top of that, they get a giant beastie boy in the water who is quite hungry, and he spots them and decides they'll be a tasty snack. Um, it's mentioned that the tube system is usually electrified to avoid attacks from that particular monster or other ones like it, but the power is out, so it does attack them uh, and the tube, and it causes some real major leaks and cracks in the glass, and they basically have to flee to the other end. AZ is smart enough to go ahead and use his own power supply to boost the tube's electrified protection thing, uh, which finally gets the monster to go away, but there is quite a bit of damage done to the tube. They have to rush on out of there as it fills with water behind them, pretty much, um, and AZ blew the remaining power for the whole area by doing that, as well as draining a good bit of his own power supply. So AZ is looking a little bit sketchy now uh, in terms of survival as well. Eventually, the whole batch gets back to the lab they were created in, and in a conversation with the other batch members, Tech basically explains that, um, explains to the others that Omega was actually born before them. She's technically older than they are. This is something that we didn't necessarily get confirmed until now. However, we had been teased very much, very strongly that that was what was going on based on some um, very short conversations that were had in previous episodes. Um, I had had my suspicion of this from some, some things that she said in the last episode, and it's really nice to have that confirmed, although it is not fully explained outright. We are very much led to believe pretty much left to assume that while some of the clones are made to age faster, which is something that was developed and learned about in previous series, Omega's aging must have had the opposite done to it, where they slowed her aging down. I had thought maybe they put her in some kind of stasis, but there is no reason to believe that based on this conversation and all their interactions and things that are said. It seems much more like she was just down here by herself being a child for pretty much eternity, um, and they came and I guess helped them into existence and watched them get born and created and, and made different just like she was. Um, and then she was alone again for a long time. So when she meets them again, she recognizes them as her brothers, um, explains a little bit more about her character being the way that she is. Unfortunately, when they all get to the next underwater room, they see that through the, the windows that have thankfully not shattered, that the next station um, of the, well, the next section of the tube that they were meant to go through is crushed, completely unusable, meant to take them to the next post which has their ship in it. Uh, fortunately, though, there are, uh, they, well, they are in a medical lab that includes these, like, sealable person-sized glass pods. So they figure out they can, if they put themselves into the pods, the, the, the little pill containers will, like, carry them to the surface because the, you know, bodies have, they tend to float, right? If they have air in them, and then the air in the pod would also really help that along. So AZ is going to be the one who stays out of the pods uh, and swim alongside the pods to make sure that they don't, because they're glass, <laughs> they don't run into anything and get destroyed or hurt or traps or anything like that. Um, 
It's a good plan, but AZ's power is still running really low, so there's a lot of tension growing at the same time with the tension of the station is constantly degrading underwater. Uh, so a lot of stuff that they're working against here. Um, and AZ has actually mentioned that he had to back up or access his backup power already at this point in the episode. A little bit of foreshadowing, if you don't mind me saying. Omega sets the charges. Um, they all load up into the pods. The charges are on the glass wall so that when they blow, um, the walls will cave in, bring the ocean in with it, and send all of the Bad Batch in their pods, little pill containers and <laughs> things, up towards the surface once the whole room is filled with water. And for the most part, it works. Um, AZ is a great little helper and kind of the hero of the hour, in my opinion, as he's able to keep them from harm on their trip to the surface. Unfortunately, all is not well, and Omega's pod does get trapped beneath some metal scaffolding of some kind that is still falling down to the bottom of the ocean, and it catches her and uh, starts pulling her pod thingy back down with her inside of it with it. Um, so AZ, seeing that the others are fine, they're still going up to the surface, follows her down, uses his gear to cut the metal off of her to uh, get her free, and then uh, starts pushing her back up to the top again. Uh, we immediately see that AZ's batteries are fading now strongly, and with one final shove, very emotional moment. Um, Star Wars and robots, man, it's, it's something else. He tells Omega that her path to the surface is clear, and he says, uh, my objective is successful, and dies, basically. Powers down. It is tragic, and Omega is trapped inside this glass tube, trying to call out to him, no AZ, you know. Um, and we watch her, watch him sink back down onto the ocean, towards the ocean bottom, helplessly. And in her panic and sadness, she just makes a quick decision and decides that she's going to save him. And she goes on her comms, she quickly tells the Batch that she has to save AZ, opens the pod, which of course floods it with the ocean, leaves her left deep underwater, and she swims after AZ. The thing is, he is a big bot compared to her little kid body. Um, and he's so far down that she has a hard time getting to him, and even when she does, she has an even harder time getting him lifted up. He's a bot. He is not full of air the way that she is. So while she may float a little bit, he does not. He sinks. Um, so she starts to lose consciousness clinging to her friend. It's a very emotional moment. Um, up at the top, the rest of the pods have already made it to the surface. And the Batch are in a bit of panic when they hear on the comms what she is doing. Hunter goes and makes a move to go after her, but at that point Crosshair picks up his gun and points it at him in response. It takes a moment, but the gun moves ever so slightly off target and shoots, sending a... is a term for it? It's a, it's, a, it's a spear on a rope? Spear on a rope. Whatever that term is. Spear on a rope down to AZ, which it attaches to and then pulls up both the bot and Omega. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, when he turns around after the fact, every one of the rest of the batch have their guns pointed at him, ready for whatever was about to happen. So, understanding there's very little trust here, and he kind of deserves that, he hands over his own gun. Once the batch are whole again and on the surface and safe, they paddle their way to the, the, the kind of base where they had landed their ship on in the last couple of episodes when they first arrived on Kamino. Um, so they get to their ship 
where they can get off planet finally before more Imperial troops arrive to scout things and make sure the demolition went as planned. They all stop for a moment on top of the platform to watch the last of the debris smoking sink into the ocean and it's it's another really emotional moment. Omega is clearly heartbroken. This is her home. This is the only place she's ever known as a home. This is where she was made, where she learned, where she first met her brothers. And as they stare silently across the waters, all she can say is how it's just all gone. And it breaks your heart to see that emotion on her face. The boys of the batch do load up, but it's clear that Crosshair has made up his mind he's not going to rejoin them. He's just going to sit around here and wait for the Empire to show back up, which also means that once the Empire shows back up and picks him up, he'll probably tell them the batch survived and this is all going to start back over again. Um, they all stop. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Omega, while she is headed uh, into the ship, she stops and turns back towards him. And he can sense her watching, so he snar snarkily asks what she wants. And she reminds him in another completely different emotional moment that he's the Batch, they're still his brothers, and he's her brother too. And the Batch take off. And leave Crosshair standing there alone <laughs> again. Um, it, it is, it's a very emotional episode and it's not over yet because we get the ending of the episode where we get to see the fate of Nala Say, who is the Kaminoan scientist who went so out of her way to make sure that Omega is not captured by, um, well, her own people and taken back and killed because that was kind of what the plan for her was if she made it back to, uh, Kamino and unto the Kamino Kaminoan's arms. But Nala Say was not all about that. She wanted, uh, she wanted Omega to to be free. Um, however, she did get picked up by the Empire and the rest of the Kaminoans, as far as we know, were executed. So she is taken pretty much as a prisoner to be a scientist on behalf of the Empire. They take her out of the uh, they take her onto this base, I guess, and she's greeted with by some other scientists with armed guards, and she's told that the Empire has big plans for her, and you can see when they say this, her face clearly falls. She didn't want this fate for herself, for her people. She doesn't like the Empire. She doesn't want to be used by the Empire. She did everything she could to help Omega, but now she's going to be probably forced into doing things that will eventually harm Omega and the people who are on her side of things. It's very sad to know that this is her fate. She is now probably the last of her people who has been kidnapped from her own planet, which has been more or less partially destroyed. Um, or made inhabitable by her, more likely. Um, and now she's stuck working for the enemy. That's, that's pretty rough. That's, 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 uh, that's quite a fate to be stuck with. I do think that we're going to be seeing more of her in season two, um, since she must be the key to tying in the plots of Snoke, you remember Snoke, um, and whatever other Palpatine clones we see later on. Um, I remember before we figured out were, were discovered. Before it was discovered what Snoke was, um, there was a lot of theories that he was part Kaminoan because of his appearance. And so I don't think it's a very big reach to assume that it's Nala Say who um, definitely has a lot of her work put into getting Snoke and the other Palpatine clones and whatnot 
up and alive and running and stuff like that years down the line. Uh, the last thing here that I want to discuss about this episode, um, it is definitely notable. The scientist who greets Nalese has the same cloning symbol on her uniform as the cloning guy we saw in Mandalorian season one, the one who was trying to defend Grogu's life, correct? Um, so this new location that Nalase has been taken to is most likely whatever new cloning base the Empire is going to have, or experiments with cloning at the very least. Um, I still think that she has that connection to Snoke somehow, and I definitely hope that we're going to see more of that play out as the series goes on into its second season, I'm guessing next year. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's go into the news and such things section of the podcast. First off, I want to talk about a theory that I have involving Jason Todd slash Red Hood on Titan season three. So we had talked before about how Jason had made before he died some weird chemical compound that is unidentifiable through computers. Um, something that my husband mentioned today that I thought was actually a very good theory. What if that is the Bane Venom, you know, Bane from, you know, Nightfall and stuff. What if, what if that's some kind of Bane Venom? We don't know if there's a Bane in this universe, but um, we could certainly imagine there is one. Um, and so I know Bane Venom tends to be like lime green yellow, and that's more or less what this stuff that he made was. So that's not a very big stretch to assume that could be it. I also have a theory myself that I think Bruce went off to Talia when he left Gotham after killing the Joker. Um, and at the same time, it could also be Talia who is involved with Jason's return. There have been a number of things in the Titans already, the first three episodes, that were directly from uh, the comics, specifically, obviously, Death in the Family and Under the Red Hood. One of those things that could be also added that is from the comic is Talia being the one who saved Jason. Um, for whatever reasons it was at the time. Um, and we know that her father, Razagul, was mentioned in a previous episode as they were trying to figure out who could have brought Jason back. His name was actually mentioned pretty uh, soon after that question was asked, um, but was immediately written off because he is somewhere else. He's obviously not in Gotham. They know that. So uh, having him written off so quickly really makes me think... Talia would be the next guess. Uh, maybe not for the Titans, but for Batman. So it could be that Bruce went off to see her after he killed the Joker, or it could be, and or it could be that she is the one who saved Jason. Just a fun theory. Um, if you have other theories about Titans season three, uh, let me have it, because I am digging it, and I am excited to watch the fourth episode this Thursday. Uh, another thing in the news, Wonder Woman Evolution. This is a new, uh, I believe it is a DC Black Label series that is going to be written by Stephanie Phillips, who is currently writing Harley Quinn, which is a very good series in my opinion. And it will be drawn by Mike Hawthorne, who just did his absolute last work for Marvel on the, uh, whatever the last issue of Daredevil was before this most recent one. <laughs> Um, so he is now moving over to DC Black Label to do this Wonder Woman Evolution series with um, Stephanie Phillips. And he has a new costume design for her. It is like a sleeveless with pants version of a couple of different things, looks that she's had in the past. And I think it looks awesome. It looks athletic. Um, it kind of reminds me of the 
um, the Shazam family in Shazam, um, the girl in the purple. It reminds me of her outfit a lot, except without a cape. Um, and it looks it looks great. Mike Hawthorne did a fantastic job of designing it. I do have one little clip here that I can read in an interview with Newsarama, uh, where Stephanie Phillips announced this project. She described the forces Diana will find herself up against and what she plans to explore in the series. And here is that quote. Their job is to keep all the various planets and species in check. When one gets a little too far out of line and poses a threat, they intervene. At the moment, they see humanity as posing a potential threat, and not just to Earth itself, but to the cosmos. The story will explore how they serve and make their decision about humanity and why Diana is the chosen proxy. It's like spacey... I mean, I don't. I, I, this sounds cool. I, I don't. I don't get it really yet, but I'm sure I will. And it sounds awesome. Diana being the like representative of Earth, I think, is kind of where I'm gathering here. Um, kind of like how. Oh God, I'd hate to bring this up, but there was the Ricky and Morty episode, the Show Me What You Got. It's like that is kind of what it feels like. I can't believe I actually made that comparison. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> But in any case, uh, Wonder Woman Evolution, I believe, starts in November, um, and I will definitely be discussing it as we get closer and get more information. Uh, for a bit of a downer, I um, wanted to mention this just because it is in the news, and this woman who it involves is a complete and total utter legend in the nerd community. Um, and that is Nichelle Nichols. Uh, she played Uhura on Star Trek, of course, the original Star Trek from Gene Roddenberry. It was the role of a lifetime. <laughs> um, it was the first time a black woman was cast in a role that was not stereotypical to her race and had actual importance to add to the show through that role. Additionally, she also had the first on-screen interracial kiss with Captain Kirk. Um, just, just truly landmark woman um, in a truly landmark role. And she did it incredibly and with such grace and honor. Um, we're bringing, we're talking about her today because she is going through in her old age, some conservatorship issues. Uh, conservatorship was something that has been in the news a lot recently due to Britney Spears, hashtag free Britney. Her, her father stepped down, but that doesn't mean she's free yet. Um, conservatorships are basically where you are someone who is seen unfit to take care of yourself and your finances and make decisions for yourself. So you are legally given a basical, basically, basically a parent, um, doesn't matter if they're related to you or not. That's all stuff the court decides, as far as I know. Um, but they are now the person who you have to go to to do anything. Um, something that Britney Spears mentioned during her conservatorship plea to have ended was how she wanted to have a baby um, and could not get permission from her conservator, her own father, to go to the doctor to get her... Um, whatever that the T implant thing is called removed so that she could have a baby. He would not let her do that. And she could not make that decision on her own legally. That's pretty nuts. Um, so when Nichelle Nichols came up in the news this morning with the term conservatorship, I felt like that was something that needed to be mentioned. I am not, to be honest, 100% clear on the information 
um, that is all out there. There are a lot of New York Times articles and other articles that are talking about it if you want to get that information. But the very basic uh, rut of it that I've kind of figured out is that since she has developed dementia, um, Nichelle Nichols unfortunately has developed dementia, and since 2018 there has been a battle of three different parties trying to take charge of her life, money, funds, absolutely everything. Um, this is obviously something that for a woman like her who is her age, who um, is developing dementia, having three different people trying to vie over controlling your every single aspect of your life is not going to be something that's going to be pretty to live through. Um, for the At the very least, that is why I wanted to mention this, because she deserves all of the respect and all of the honor and... Um, being aware that there's this kind of battle happening over her right to live, kind of, in a way, is very disheartening. Um, so please, if you want more information about that, do go read the New York Times articles. I know that there was another, I want to say LA Times, it may have been the New York Times as well, uh, it was an article that had been posted, I believe, around 2018 when this all kind of started, and um, the the person who interviewed her didn't see a need for a conservatorship. She was there. She was clear. She was sane. She was capable of thought, you know. Um, you only really give conservatorships to people who mentally cannot be adults in their own lives. Um, and clearly that was not the case at the time this conservatorship was first put into place. So um, if you, I, I definitely recommend reading up on the information. I, I know that I will be after I finish recording this podcast and once I have some time to do that. Um, because she is an incredible woman and does deserve all the respect in the world. And I hate to see that she might be going through something that is traumatic to someone like her. And a little bit of a more <laughs> up note here. We're getting towards the end of things here. Uh, just as a reminder, there's two different reminders, I suppose. What if episode two is going to be happening? It's going to be premiering on Wednesday on Disney Plus. It will be up at midnight, I believe. Um, it is going to be this episode... T'Challa Star-Lord. Um, there's a couple of things to note about this. This was recorded before the passing of Chadwick Boseman to cancer. Uh, this was the last anything to do with Black Panther that he did. Um, so I, I definitely expect there to be some tears during watching this because this, as, as many, 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 many people have said, uh, Chadwick Boseman was King T'Challa. Um, he embodied that. He did a fantastic job from head to toe um, in the public, in the press, absolutely just honoring the character and being true to what the character means. Um, and as we all know, he I believe, passed away, I believe, last year um, due to cancer that most, if not all, of his co-workers were unaware of. Um, clearly very private about it and did not want that to be affecting his career. So when he filmed this, um, this episode of What If, when he voiced Ch uh, T'Challa one last time, he probably knew he was dying or at least knew that things were not looking well for his health. Um, and this is the last thing that he did as Black Panther, one of the last things that he did for his career, if not the last one. Um, so this is going to be, this is going to be a lot of feels. Um, any other time, if there's ever any Black Panther 
it's not going to be him. This is it. Um, and I definitely, you know, kind of on the same thing. I Whenever we see, finally, um, Wakanda Forever, bring a tissue box with you. Because you can bet your ass that they are going to put every ounce of energy they have into an intro that will make you cry your fucking eyes out. Sorry for the language. Not really, because I mean it. <laughs> We're all gonna sob. They're gonna make sure we sob. So I have a feeling they're gonna make sure we get a little bit emotional about Chadwick Boseman on the Wednesday episode of What If, as is due. Finally, last thing I want to mention here today is that Shang-Chi tickets are on sale as of today. Uh, it premieres September 3rd, I believe, so we have less than a month. Um, I am absolutely thrilled that we are getting this movie. I don't really have too much theories and things to add on top of what's already been said. Um, I do think that Aquafina's character of Katie is some kind of spirit who has gone into a body and then she wakes up and that's why she has the red dress and the bow and arrow. Um, I don't know. It could be completely wrong. Who knows? But I'm very excited to see this. Uh, Simu Liu is doing a fantastic job of being really excited about this, as are the rest of the cast and characters. Uh, and me. I am very excited about it, too. Uh, being the wife of an Asian man, he is, of course, extremely excited, and I want him to be there opening night to see it, whether I am or not. So... Um, it's something that's very important to that community, and I I really, really hope that it gets the celebration that it so deserves. The next episode of Sensational She-Geek, live from Yancey Street, will be posted this coming Friday morning on the 20th, and I will be discussing comic book picks, Titans Episode 4, What If Episode 2, and possibly possibly episodes of Superman and Lois that I got behind on after their hiatus, but I really wasn't a fan of the last episode, so maybe not. We'll see. I might watch them and make fun of them. We'll see. Um, we will also, uh, that episode will also be pre-recorded just to kind of let you know that. I'll be recording it on Thursday and posting it on Friday. Um, so if there's something that happens Thursday night or Friday morning, it will not be in that podcast. Uh, it will have to happen uh, on the Monday, 31A. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast for whatever amount of time you have listened to it. I always appreciate, uh, whatever amount of effort people <laughs> go into to, uh, listening to these, these semi-weekly rambles that I go on. Um, as I said in the beginning, you can find all of these episodes on most places that podcasts stream, including YouTube. Um, so it's fairly accessible and I really like it when people interact with things. Um, I know I don't always get back to you right away. I'm sorry. I have a very busy life at the moment. Um, but uh, I love I love knowing, like kind of having that confirmed that people are listening to it. So um, like, subscribe, share. That's probably the best way that you can, you can support the podcast, period, is by sharing it with people who you think are going to listen to it and share it and enjoy it themselves. Um, so that, that of course is the absolute best way you can support the podcast. And then if you want to donate to the podcast, as I said in the beginning, I have the podcast Patreon, Sensational She Geek, as well as the Redbubble store that goes directly to the podcast fund as well. That is under, uh, She Geek Shop. And you can find some stuff on there to support the podcast as well. As I said, the next episode will be on Friday the 20th. Um, this week is going to be a toasty one for me. Um, wherever you are in the world, I hope that your summer is going, or winter, I guess, if you're in the southern hemisphere, which I am not. Um, 
I hope whatever is going on in your life is happening okay and that you're not too spread thin about things. I know life gets really busy as my own is at the moment. So um, have a good week. Find some time to do things for yourself, whatever that may be. Uh, please don't don't be an idiot. Don't be a Karen. If you're stupid, that's fine. It's not your fault. But if don't be a Karen. There's nothing wrong with being stupid. Just don't be a Karen. Um, but 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 be passionate about the stuff you love and be sweaty about comics.